Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time On October 2nd, 2018, we lost a recording engineer who played an extremely important role in the Beatles' story and in the history of recorded music, Jeff Emmerich. Emmerich began working at EMI Studios at the age of 16, and during his first week, he sat in on the Beatles' first studio session on June 6, 1962. But he wouldn't formally work on a Beatles session until February 20, 1963, when he served as tape operator for an overdub session with George Martin for Misery and Baby It's You. But it wasn't until March 13th that he would work on a session with an actual Beatle. It was again an overdub session, this time for Lennon's harmonica on Thank You Girl, and Emmerich served as second engineer. Emmerich's first experience with all four Beatles was on the extremely exciting July 1st session for the She Loves You, I'll Get You single when the studio was infiltrated by a number of female fans. He would continue to work with the group on sessions for With the Beatles and Hard Day's Night before joining EMI's disc cutting team. Engineer Norman Smith was the architect of the Beatles' sound, from Please Please Me to Rubber Soul, and his recording techniques laid the groundwork for Emmerich. And although Smith was the engineer for the first six Beatles albums, almost 100 Beatles songs, Emmerich actually participated in more Beatles sessions than any other engineer at EMI. The Beatles were constantly pushing the boundaries in the studio, and by 1966 they needed an engineer who was willing to try anything to get a new sound. That engineer was Jeff Emmerich. He was only 20 years old, three years younger than George Harrison, the youngest Beatle, and was willing to follow the group down any path. Norman Smith had grown a bit tired of working with the group after three years and was ready to move from the engineer's chair to the producer's chair, and in February of 66, he was promoted to EMI's A&R department, taking the role that George Martin had previously held as head of Parlophone. The next year, Smith would produce Pink Floyd's debut album. Emmerich recalled how he was promoted to engineer. The studio manager called me to his office and asked whether I'd like to be the Beatles' engineer. That took me a little by surprise. In fact, it terrified me. I remember playing a game in my head, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. shall I say yes, shall I say no. The responsibility was enormous, but I said yes, thinking that I'd accept the blows as they came. His first session was for Tomorrow Never Knows. Quite an interesting first session. Emmerich was one of a small group that brought engineering into the modern era. One of the things that he did that changed the sound of the Beatles' records from Revolver on was the close miking of the drums, as well as other instruments. His techniques for miking drums were revolutionary and are still used today. Emmerich recalled how difficult it was to break the rules at EMI Studios at the time. For example, on Ringo's drum sound, I wanted to move the mic closer to the bass drum. Well, we weren't allowed. I was caught putting the mic about three inches from the bass drum, and I was reprimanded. I said, look, this is the bass drum sound we've got, and we don't want to touch it. And so I was sent a letter from one of the guys in the office down the corridor, giving permission, only on Beatles sessions, to put the microphone three inches from the drum. They were worried, you see, about the air pressure, that it would damage the mic. In 2007, producer George Martin elaborated on the myriad ways that the Beatles' sound changed in 1966. A lot of that was down to Jeff Emmerich. 
He brought a new kind of mind to the recordings, always suggesting sonic ideas, different kinds of reverb, what we could do with the voices. He was quite prepared to break the rules. You call that top, this is top, he'd say, turning the dial all the way around. He was always experimenting, and the bosses at EMI didn't like it. He got severely reprimanded when they found him putting a microphone in a pail of water to see what the effect was. I loved that freedom of thought. Tonight we're going to focus on some of the songs that feature some of Emmerich's best work as the Beatles engineer. We're going to start with some tracks from Revolver, beginning with Tomorrow Never Knows, Emmerich's first session as first engineer. For Tomorrow Never Knows, Emmerich's innovative bent was apparent in at least two ways. First of all, he took a Beatles sweater made for four by a fan and placed it into Starr's bass drum in order to muffle the sound, something that's quite commonplace in the studio today. When Lennon requested a vocal sound like the Dalai Lama and thousands of Tibetan monks chanting on a mountaintop, Emmerich came up with the ingenious idea of using a Leslie cabinet, a speaker cabinet with two rotating speakers typically used with a Hammond organ. We're going to first hear the track that was used as a loop for the original version of Tomorrow Never Knows, followed by the slowed down loop, and finally the drum bass and vocal overdubs along with the loop. We'll then hear the basic track for the final version of the song.
Next up, Paperback Writer, a song where Emmerich used a speaker cabinet as a microphone in order to get more low-end while recording the bass cabinet. After that, the flip side of the Paperback Writer single, Rain. We'll first hear the backing track as recorded, and then the backing track slowed down as heard on the final recording. We'll close out this section with the close mic string octet of Eleanor Rigby. Tape operator and second engineer Jerry Boys elaborated on what made the team for Revolver work so well together. Jeff walked in green, but because he knew no rules, he tried different techniques. And because the Beatles were very creative and very adventurous, they would say yes to everything. The chemistry of George and Jeff was perfect, and they made a formidable team. With another producer and another engineer, things would have turned out quite differently. One, two, three, four.
back with this special tribute to engineer Jeff Emmerich on the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. We're going to turn our attention to three songs from 1967. We'll start with two forward-thinking tracks released as a double A-side single in February of 67. The first, Strawberry Feels Forever, posed a serious challenge for Emmerich and producer George Martin. 
After recording a few completely different versions of the song, Lennon decided that he liked the first half of the second version and the second half of the third version, and asked them to join the two, although they were in different keys and played at different tempos. Martin and Emmerich were up for the task and realized that if they sped up the remix of the second version and slowed down the remix of the third version, the two could be spliced together. Tonight we'll hear each of the two takes stripped down. We'll follow with a stark instrumental of Penny Lane, highlighting the layered pianos that gave the track its pulse. After that, the song that closed the Sgt. Pepper album, A Day in the Life. Emmerich was quite proud of the drum sound, and with good reason. As he recalled, because John and Paul felt so strongly that the drums would be featured in this song, I decided to experiment sonically as well. We were looking for a thicker, more tonal quality, so I suggested that Ringo tune his toms really low, making the skins really slack, and I also added a lot of low end at the mixing console. That made them sound almost like timpani but I still felt there was more I could do to make his playing stand out. During the making of Revolver, I had removed the front skin from Ringo's bass drum, and everyone was pleased with the resultant sound, so I decided to extend that principle and take off the bottom heads from the tom-toms as well, miking them from underneath. We had no boom stands that could extend underneath the floor tom, so I simply wrapped the mic in a towel and placed it in a glass jug on the floor. For the icing on the cake, I decided to overly limit the drum premix, which made the cymbals sound huge. It took a lot of work and effort, but that's one drum sound I was extremely proud of, and Ringo, who was always meticulous about his sounds, loved it too. Nothing is 
with fields. This is uh, wait, twenty five. One, two, three.
Emmerich had served as first engineer for nearly all of the sessions for Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, and many for the Magical Mystery Tour project. But by 1968, things had changed in the studio, and on July 16th, six weeks into the sessions for the White Album, Emmerich decided he had had enough. He recalled, I lost interest in the White Album because they were really arguing amongst themselves and swearing at each other. The expletives were really flying. There was one instance just before I left when they were doing Obladi Oblada for the umpteenth time. Paul was re-recording the vocal again, and George Martin made some remark about how he should be lilting onto the half-beat or whatever, and Paul, in no refined way, said something to the effect of, well, you come down and sing it. I said to George, look, I've had enough. I want to leave. I don't want to know anymore. George said, well, leave at the end of the week. I think it was a Monday or Tuesday, but I said, no, I want to leave now, this very minute, and that was it. He wouldn't work with the group again until April 14, 1969, when he engineered the session for The Ballad of John and Yoko a session that only included two Beatles, Lennon and McCartney. He returned full-time in July of 69 and served as engineer on the Abbey Road sessions at Paul McCartney's request, a week after he had left EMI to run Apple Studios. So when he returned to EMI, he returned as the first freelance engineer to work there. We're going to close the show tonight with a remix of the Side 2 medley from the album that was almost named Everest after the brand of cigarette that Emmerich smoked. Enjoy.
shop, she never stops, she's a go-getter. Takes him out to look at the queen, only place that he's ever been. Always shouts out something obscene, such a dirty old man.
Well, that's it for this time, Beatles fans. I hope you enjoyed this special tribute to engineer Jeff Emmerich on the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, all that's left to know about this elusive band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, solo cuts, live tracks, and much, much more. You can pick up the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite booksellers. And you can pick up my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, at anthonyrobostelli.com, CD Baby, iTunes, or you could stream it on Spotify or any of your favorite providers. You could also stream past shows on Podbean and iTunes. You could follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You and The Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.